If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. We're here to question whether perhaps playing the strongman on the world stage and being unpredictable might actually make the world a safer rather than a more dangerous place. From peace talks to trade agreements, the norms for brokering peace seem well established. However, this week, our speakers question whether the belligerent foreign policy of leaders today suggests a change in the rules of the game for achieving global peace. Are war and peace turning out to be two sides of the same coin? We're talking mainly about Trump, who I'm sure a lot of people in this tent think is a bit of a buffoon. But paradoxically, perhaps his foreign policy is actually achieving something. From the Iran nuclear deal to peace in North Korea, will Trump's foreign policy be looked at in the future as a lesson in manufacturing peace? Or is this a sign of more troubling times to come? Taking on the state of war and peace today, we have outspoken former Labour MP and founder of the Respect Party, George Galloway, and co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, Mark Leonard. As ever, please do get in touch and tell us what you thought of this week's episode. Head over now to iTunes and give us a rating and review to let us know what you thought. Tell anyone you know that might be interested. And of course, have a look at our whole host of episodes which are available from Philosophy for Our Times. Back now to Marianne Seacart, who hosts this week's episode. Does that sort of policy, strongman policy, unpredictable, slightly crazy policy, make the world safer or more precarious? So, George. Can a belligerent foreign policy lead to stability in the world like we've never tried that before? In fact, the world is in chaos precisely because of 
a belligerent foreign policy. And sometimes the belligerents are mad, like Donald Trump, bad, like Tony Blair, imbecilic, like George W. Bush, uh, but they were all exponents of and practitioners of a belligerent foreign policy. And the results are therefore all to see. The question seems premised on the assumption that uh, we have had a non-belligerent foreign policy at any point uh, in modern history. In fact, since the United States was born, it has been at war all but one year, all but one year in its entire lifetime. And the last time Britain had no soldiers fighting abroad, and only briefly, uh, was in 1779. So we have had not just a lifetime of, but centuries of foreign policy belligerence. And it doesn't flow from any psychopathic character necessarily, although some, like Richard Nixon, and his belligerent foreign policy was undoubtedly psychopathic, like his foreign policy guru, seems to have been the guru to many, including the aforementioned Tony Blair, Henry Kissinger, were undoubtedly psychopathic. But it doesn't necessarily require that. It requires a view of the world that the rich and powerful have the right to dictate to the less rich and less powerful, that the people who can do, if you can conquer other people's countries in the past, or conquer their economic uh, reality, if not their territory, as happens more often nowadays, if you can, you do. Uh, and that's why we have chaos and violence and the threat of truly unbelievable levels of violence uh, in front of us today. You ask, Marianne, uh, about Trump and his foreign policy. Let's review it. Trump has unilaterally withdrawn from the Iran nuclear deal, signed Solomon binding uh, by his predecessor, and the permanent five plus one and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And impeccably, I'm using the words of the IAEA, impeccably observed by Iran. Trump has unilaterally withdrawn from it, begun a raft of ever deep and punishing economic sanctions against Iran. And yesterday, a major terrorist atrocity was carried out by Saudi-sponsored, which means American-sponsored, terrorists in Awaz in Iran, which killed 26 people now, not just soldiers, but old soldiers, paraplegic soldiers, members of the public in the crowd, and journalists covering the event. We are headed, potentially, to cataclysmic conflict. Again, in the Middle East, what could possibly go wrong? Iran will undoubtedly 
respond extremely violently against Saudi Arabia at any minute, certainly not long delayed. That will beget a response, and so the spiral towards war uh, will twist. Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, the former head of the CIO, CIA, this uh, week threatened actions against Venezuela. They've already got sanctions, almost uncountable number of them. Now it's U.S. actions against Venezuela that we can expect uh, in the next few days. And the elephant in the room, uh, the morass of the Syrian war, some of you know me from my stand against the Iraq war, I'm here to tell you that the involvement of Western countries in the Syrian war is the worst thing we have ever done, i.e. worse than Libya, worse than Iraq. Our belligerent foreign policy of arming, financing, propagandizing for ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the alphabet soup of Islamist fanaticism in Syria is the worst thing that we have ever done. And notwithstanding that the war is almost over, we may very well be about to double down, to double our bets on the catastrophic conflict in Syria. So can a belligerent foreign policy bring about peace and stability in the world? Not bloody likely. Thank you, George. Right, over to you, Mark. <clears throat> so um, I agree with the last sentence that George um, uttered, but I do think that there's a fundamental problem with the way that he laid out his case, which is that he's normalizing Donald Trump and just putting him into a continuum of Western foreign policy over the last few decades. But I think the reason we're having this debate is that something quite fundamental is happening. There is a, a fundamental disruption in Western foreign policy, which is deeply troubling and deeply worrying. And one of the ways that you can see how much the world is changing and how quick the chaos which Donald Trump has unleashed is going through our, um, our political systems, our international institutions, is the fact that even uh, Donald Trump jokes are getting out of date very quickly. During the election campaign, Conan O'Brien uh, quipped that 70% of Americans were, were deeply uh, worried about the idea of a Trump presidency and 30% were becoming Canadian. But if he was making the joke now, he'd realize that the last thing anyone wants to do is to become Canadian because Donald Trump seems to have a particular animus against America's northern neighbor and sees it as uh, one of the, the worst foes of the American system. And I think the reason for that is that he has a fundamentally different worldview from President Obama, President Bush, Bush the father, Clinton, Reagan, or any of the other presidents that have um, been in power at least um, in the last 100 years. And 
I think there are three things which are uniquely uh, worrying about Trump as, as president. The first is that he is the only US president in my lifetime who has seen the international order as something which undermines rather than enhances American power in the world. And I don't think that he thinks that that order doesn't benefit the West and benefit the US, but he does think that it benefits others more, in particular China. And his starting point is that if he does nothing at all, he will be the president that oversees the relative decline of his great nation and that China will become the most powerful country in the world because every year China becomes stronger and richer and the US, in relative terms, even though it grows, is, 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 is becoming smaller. And he, but he thinks that the entire establishment and the elite is so wedded to this order and this way of doing things that it's incapable of reforming it. And therefore, what I think he's trying to do is, is to launch a process of sort of Schumpeterian creative destruction, where the first instance is to blow everything up with a view then to renegotiating the order on terms which he thinks are more beneficial to the US, because he thinks the paradox of the status quo is that America is paying a lot of money, is, is uh, losing a lot of lives in order to sustain an order which is helping China more than America. And that's why he's blown up the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, which George was talking about, why he's trying to blow up the World Trade Organization, why he's threatening NATO, why he's withdrawing from almost every body um, that you can think of in the United Nations. Um, it's because these are part of an order which he thinks the US is trapped in, which constrains it. And above all, in his very zero-sum mind, these are all institutions which empower the weak over the strong. And America is the strongest and the most powerful country in the world. So therefore, any institution which brings countries together to negotiate with the US is one which, in relative terms, weakens the US and strengthens other countries against it. And that's why these institutions need to be destroyed. That's why he talks about the European Union as a foe, um, even though we are the, the closest allies of the US and have been for, for decades, because he thinks that the EU was, was designed to, to weaken the US and to strengthen weak European countries. And then I think stage two in this process of Schumpeterian creative destruction is to, to try and renegotiate an order on bilateral terms, where the US deals with every single country on a one-to-one -one basis, so it can do it from a position of strength and make the new order cheaper and less constraining. But the impact of that is really to, to destroy all of the advances which have been made in the last few decades. And I find George's characterization of the last few decades is very strange. I, my mother is a German Jew. She was born in exile in, in France. Most of her family were wiped out in concentration camps. My father is British, but his earliest memories of being evacuated as an eight-year-old during the Second World War, his father got gassed in the First World War. The fact that my generation and my kids who are sitting in the front can look forward at a sort of world where the idea of war between European countries is, is unthinkable, where they can travel without showing their passports from one country to another, and where we have law-based, controlled ways of dealing with disagreements between countries is, a, is an incredible advance. I don't want to um, minimize the 
catastrophe of the Iraq war, all, the, all of the other mistakes and uh, belligerent acts of Western foreign policy over the last few decades. But we live in a completely different world. It's a world that is being threatened by Donald Trump and by what's happening at the moment. And that brings me to the second threat of Donald Trump as president, which is the fact that, going back to my Canadian example, the people that he feels the greatest animus to are American allies because they're the ones who are propping up the system the most. So he thinks that they are the number one uh, enemies in his process of disrupting the global order. That's why he's much more comfortable dealing with Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un than dealing with Angela Merkel. And the fact that he's undermining US alliances means that every single part of the world where order has been based on alliances with the United States is becoming much more unsafe. That's true of Europe, it's true of Asia, it's true of the Middle East, and what's happening is two things are going on. As American alliances become questioned and people uh, don't know whether they can count on Donald Trump to, to back them up, the American allies are having to hedge against being abandoned by the United States. So they're having to rethink their options, to rearm, and to up their military spending. But at the same time, the enemies of the United States, its rivals, also wondering whether the US is going to back up their allies. So they're testing out how far America will stand by its allies. And they're also encouraged to rearm and to behave in belligerent ways. So in every theatre of the world, what we're going to see over the next few years are new levels of instability, new levels of violence. And the, the problems which uh, George Galloway was talking about in the Middle East are not about Western foreign policy and us arming um, relatively dysfunctional groups in Syria. It's about the fact that there was an order which was guaranteed by Western powers, which has now disappeared. And that's created a space where Iran and Saudi Arabia and others who were held together in place by uh, a, a, a system are now testing out their power and, and fighting death. And nobody cares about what they're doing and no one's trying to stop them. And there are no limits on the instability which can happen as a result of that. And the third thing which I'd like to end with about Donald Trump, which is something which I don't think we should normalize either, is not him as an individual, his unpredictability, his misogyny, his racism, and all the horrible and disreputable functions of, of, of Donald Trump. But it is the philosophy which he embodies, which he's a symptom of, the idea of Trumpism. And that is a cancer which has taken hold in all Western developed societies, where a large number of people who feel that they've been left behind by established politicians and by established political parties, who do not feel that they've benefited from the advances which I described earlier. And actually, rather than seeing a world of greater opportunity, they feel threatened by a lot of the infrastructure of the globalized world, whether it's free movement, free trade. And they feel nervous about the nature, the culture of their communities changing, the economic circumstances, their job security being changed in a world where the West and the, developing, uh, the developed countries feel that they're being kind of marginalized by a rise of, uh, of, of, of others and that that's coming into our own societies. And that plays to a politics of, of what is called the, what political scientists call the threatened majority, where the people who felt that they were in power now worry that every other kind of minority is being mobilized against them and that therefore are ripe for manipulation by political figures, whether it's Farage in this country, Donald Trump in America, Marine Le Pen in France, the AfD in Germany. And if these political forces succeed to uh, work together, 
um, as we've seen happening with, with Salvini in Italy and Orban in Hungary, they're not just going to turn our own countries into much less safe and, uh, and comfortable places to live, but they could actually join Donald Trump in dismantling this global order, which has made my lifetime much more comfortable, much safer, and much less threatening than that of my parents or grandparents. Well, it looks like I'm going to have to play devil's advocate here. <laughs> so, if you're America and you have been the leading member of NATO for the past, um, whatever it is, sort of 60-odd years, 70-odd years, and you have spent twice as much of your GDP, sometimes three times as much of your GDP on defence, and you've watched the other European members of NATO free-riding on your defence expenditure, don't you have a right to say, come on, guys, shape up, pull your weight? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that um, Europeans need to take responsibility for their own affairs. We have um, uh, achieved incredible things in our own continent in the last few decades, and it's only been possible because this remaking of the European order has been done under an American security blanket, which Europeans have not paid for. I think in the early years and decades after the... Um, the, the Second World War, as someone from a German-Jewish background, I think it was probably healthy for Germany not to be spending 5-10% of its GDP on defence. But I do think, in the long term, it's obscene for 350 million Americans to be paying for the security of 500 million Europeans that are as rich as them. And our interests are not the same. And Trump's actually shown how dangerous it is for us to put our security in the hands of the incumbent of the White House. Not because America is a uniquely evil or, or, or dangerous country. In fact, you know, if any country was going to be a superpower over the last few decades, I think we, America was definitely the one that I would most have wanted to, to, to be in that position. But we're seeing, whether it's over the Iran nuclear deal, whether it's about Jerusalem as capital of, um, of, of, uh, of recognizing Jerusalem as capital of Israel, whether it's um, how we deal with Turkey. Our interests are not identical with American interests. And if we don't take responsibility for our own affairs, then we'll find ourselves unable to, to um, do things which are, which are right for our societies or, and also to stand up for the kind of rule-based order which Europeans believe in. So I, I agree with the critique that, w that Europeans should spend more on European defense, that we need a more kind of grown-up relationship with the US where we're dealing with them more as equals. But I think that the amount of money the US has paid for uh, towards NATO over the last few decades is very cheap compared to the amount of money that American citizens, taxpayers, had to pay to get involved in World War I, in World War II, or during the Cold War, um, where they were dealing with Europeans being kind of belligerent, being at each other's throats, and having more kind of militarized societies. So um, I, I'm not sure that... Um, uh, that his solution to the problem is, is one which will actually be in America's long-term interests. Um, but I, I, I do hope that Europeans take this as a wake-up call because the world is very, very fragile at the moment. It's not just Trump. It's Xi Jinping in China. It's Erdogan in Turkey. It's Putin in Russia. Um, there is a, 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 a universalization of this kind of strongman foreign policy and the world around us is becoming much, much uh, uh, more unsafe. And um, 
if we really believe in what we've managed to achieve over the last few decades, then we need to stand up and, and be willing to defend it. And that can't just be with great speeches um, or even by taking out economic sanctions against people who are threatening that order. I think ultimately we have to have the full range of tools, and that includes military power. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. George? Well, as half an Irishman, I'm entitled to say, as the Irishman apocryphally did when asked the road to London, I wouldn't have started from here. The uh, exceptionalization of Donald Trump, to which you've just been listening, is absurd. Donald Trump's been the president of the United States for less than two years. Did the chaos in the world start less than two years ago? It's utterly ridiculous. The crooner, your idol, nice soup, Barack, destroyed Libya and turned it into a slave market and a jihad market for at least seven heavily armed different Islamist groups. It wasn't Trump that did that. It was Obama that did that. You have the gall to pray and aid George W. Bush as somehow better than Donald Trump. George W. Bush and your other hero, Tony Blair, killed a million people in Iraq and rising, spawned ISIS, cascaded it across the world. You say how happy, how smug you are about the rules-based society that we had before Donald Trump 23 months ago, 22 months ago. Where was the rules-based order in the invasion and occupation of Iraq? An utterly illegal act, the consequences of which we'll still be feeling in a hundred years from now. Where was the rules based in the destruction of Yugoslavia? No international law, no United Nations Security Council, unilateral use of Western power deployed by the people you're trying to persuade us were better than Donald Trump. Vietnam was leveled, bombed back to the Stone Age, drowned in chemical weapons by Richard Nixon and by Lyndon Johnson. They were a part of this rules-based complacency of which you speak. And in aid of your argument, you draw attention to the fact that populists are coming to power. The populists are coming to power precisely because of the failure of your international order precisely because of the failure of your orthodoxy. It's because 
neoliberal politics totally failed in Italy, that you have the government in Italy you have. Ditto in Hungary. Ditto the rise, although it's stopped now. You may have noticed that Mélenchon, with whom I agree in every particular, is now the most popular politician in France. Not Le Pen. She's gone off for psychiatric treatment. The, the rise of Trump, the rise of Corbyn, the rise of the right and the populists in Italy are all because of the failure of this order which you so smugly uh, wish to return us to. I don't think it was the about foreign policy, George, to be honest. The reason these populists have been so successful is because of domestic discontent. But you can't separate foreign policy. Yes, you can. No, you the can. average voter on the doorstep no, who's voting can't. for Donald Trump is not talking well, about Syria. They're well, talking about wrong. jobs you're and manufacturing. Wrong, in fact. You're quite wrong, in fact. Really? The reason <laughs> for the rise of the populists in Italy is why? Because the country has been flooded by millions of refugees from the wars begun by your heroes. First of all, let Mark that's the reason let why Ma let Mark the defend right himself can I have returned. Yeah, okay, can I that's it. All, um, well, he's spoken for no. twice as long as me already. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think I you're both getting a very fair crack. Right. I might have spoken for longer, but I wasn't uh, accusing you of worshipping heroes that, that you didn't worship. Um, so maybe I can sort of uh, try and take a step back from your very powerful rhetoric and say, first of all, the fact that we can talk about breaches of the rules-based order like uh, what happened in Iraq. Breaches? You called it a mistake, now it's a breach? It's a million people dead, for God's sake! Well, this isn't a rally, this is a debate. People who okay. died um, of sanctions beforehand, according to people who were, who were criticizing it before. Saddam Hussein killed many, many people. I was against the war in Iraq, and I'm still against the war in Iraq. Nothing has happened over the last uh, 15 years to change my mind about that. But I think it's the very fact that uh, there was an order that we can recognize that as a breach of the order. Now, what makes me slightly uncomfortable about your rhetorical flourish is that you put all of these different things, which are quite different, on the same level. You know, what happened in Vietnam, what happened in Iraq, being put on the same level as intervening to stop genocide in Kosovo, I find strange. They're not, you know, not every type of use of violence. I think using violence is always bad, but sometimes it's the least bad option. I think the Second World War was justified given what Hitler stood for. I think intervening in Kosovo was justified in order to stop a genocide um, where um, lots of innocent people were being... That's what you um, said in Libya. Well. I was not particularly involved in, in the Libyan war. I think, with hindsight, what we can see is... It was genocide in Libya, genocide in Kosovo, okay, genocide so in Iraq, so you, if, genocide if, in Syria. Let, let it's Mark always finish. genocide. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure exactly. If everything's genocide, then it basically normalizes the idea of genocide. For me... Well, stop, you stop tossing it about then. Well, he actually, used it, he I used only it used Kosovo, the word genocide actually. once about my family that was actually wiped out. No, in you a said real, it in no, Kosovo. George, there was no genocide in Kosovo. I, there was ethnic cleansing and people being That's killed. That's not genocide. Well... Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so... Um, You've got a microphone on. You don't need to shout. Okay. So... Um, 
I, I do think that it's important not to toss words like genocide about. Agreed. It's also important not to put every single foreign policy decision that you disagreed with on the same level. There, there is the fact that there was a rules-based order means that we can see the breaches of that order, and that is what's being destroyed. And to to see, I, I hated George Bush. He was my least favorite American president until Donald Trump was was elected. I uh, was absolutely disgusted by it. I wrote a whole book against Bush's foreign policy back in 2004. But at the same time, I do think that he was a fundamentally different figure from Donald Trump because he basically believed in the existence of a rule-based order and he was pushing to, to change it. Donald Trump wants to blow the whole thing up and to bring us to a stage of, ag of anarchy where the only thing that matters is the law of the, the jungle and um, where the strong decide what happens and the weak have to do what they tell them to do. And I don't want to live in, in that world. And I think if you can't see the difference between those two uh, situations and you just normalize Trump and put him into some kind of continuum of, uh, of, of betrayal which goes back you know, centuries like you did beforehand, and everything is genocide and every military campaign is equally bad, then it's impossible to have a, a serious discussion about, about what we're trying to do in this world. I do think that there have been all sorts of mistakes made over the last few decades. I'm a social democrat. I'm not a neoliberal. I think that a lot of these populist parties are coming to, to, to power because of a failure of domestic politics. I think some of the leaders, like Jeremy Corbyn, are there because of failures of foreign policy. There would be no Corbyn if there hadn't been an Iraq war. That is clear to me. But um, I think it is important to, to try and hang on to what, what matters um, in these things. Because if not, you end up in a kind of nihilistic place like where everything's equally bad and where the solution is uh, where you just sort of um, have nothing constructive to say about anything because everyone is a war criminal, everyone is equally evil, everyone is, is, is kind of genocidal. And that completely undermines any critique that we have of what's happening at the moment, which I think is really worrying and scary and needs to be stopped. Can we talk a bit more about what, what's happening at the moment in relation to North Korea, which is something we haven't mentioned yet? So some people are saying, okay, a few months ago, three or four months ago, we were worried about a nuclear war in North Korea. Now we've got uh, Kim Jong-un meeting with the president of South Korea, deciding to, to a bid to host the Olympics together, agreeing to denuclearization, and that that is down to Donald Trump's tough foreign policy. No? Well, I mean, I think his foreign policy has worked incredibly well on one country in the world, and that's China. I was in China um, a few weeks ago and was very struck that they see Donald Trump in completely different terms to how he's seen in the West. Most of my American friends and all of my European friends see Trump, as you described him at the beginning, as a kind of buffoon who's self-defeating and kind of destructive and, and doing um, uh, all sorts of things which, which undermine American interests. And I do at a kind of fundamental level, as I said in my first answer, but at the same time, in China, they think that he, he's both a kind of master strategist and a master tactician, that he basically um, pushed them, um, uh, it, they think that he's been declaring war on them on kind of three fronts, on an economic front, on a kind of political front, and an ideological front. And they use North Korea as the kind of prime example, where he ups the ante, creates a real sense of crisis, puts the uh, Chinese government under so much pressure to introduce sanctions that they shift their position six or seven times. He 
they get to the point where uh, the North Koreans almost see the South Koreans as kind of sworn enemies, their closest allies with the only country that they have a treaty relationship with. And then when he realizes that he's run out of road, he shifts tack, basically tries to do a deal, and, um, uh, and then opens up a new front with the Chinese on trade, um, which we're now on at the moment. And I think, actually, uh, you know, having seen various different presidents and lots of Europeans fail to make any headway on the Chinese, there is some kind of uh, logic in, in terms of how he's handling with China. Is he helping on North Korea? Um, I think it's much too early to tell. Um, I'm happy that they're talking rather than him threatening, you know, tweeting about Rocket Man and threatening preemptive nuclear strikes at the moment. But I do worry that... Um, as a result of mistakes in, in Western foreign policy over the last few decades, we created uh, very perverse incentives for the, for the North Koreans. Having seen what happened to Saddam Hussein, to Gaddafi, I think it's quite difficult to see why North Korea wouldn't want to have nuclear weapons and why a North Korean leader wouldn't want to have nuclear weapons and why he trusts Western assurances that we will uh, not try and change the regime if, uh, if they get rid of their nuclear weapons. So I'd be amazed if they really do do that. Um, and then it, ripping up the Iran nuclear deal at exactly the moment that you're trying to do a deal with the North Koreans um, on nuclear weapons seems like an inexplicable and sort of catastrophic decision. Um, so uh, we'll see what happens. I also worry that if this fails, as it's quite likely to, it will then empower the hawks like John Bolton within the administration who want to go back to using military solutions against North Korea. And I think that is the, the scariest thing. Um, so I do think we have every uh, incentive to try and make this work as much as possible. I think that you have very wise leadership being shown by the South Korean authorities that have been trying to handle and, and to manage um, uh, uh, Trump. But they're in a very risky position because they uh, have exposed themselves enormously. And Trump is totally unreliable and unpredictable. And um, uh, that could be another big casualty of, of, of this affair. But I, I, I think... Um, you know, the time to make past judgment on his, on his North Korean diplomacy is probably in sort of five or six years' time rather than at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so George, we've heard a very passionate denunciation from you of the rules-based international order. Can you tell us what you think should replace it? Uh, Donald Trump is an unpredictable, unstable uh, person. Uh, he's not a strong and stable genius. Uh, He's a bull in a china shop. Uh, and to mix the metaphor, even a stock clock is right twice a day. And he was right to meet with the North Korean leadership. And he was right to encourage a rapprochement between North and South Korea, and it's going swimmingly. In fact, it's practically a love-in. The Koreans uh, are embracing each other with a warmth and vigor that no one could possibly have imagined and Donald Trump's predecessors would never have permitted. This is important. Barack Obama would never have met Kim Jong-un. And therefore, the permafrost of North-South Korea relations uh, would have continued. So and, uh, not only would Barack Obama not have done it, Hillary Clinton would not have done it. And so if we are looking objectively at this thing, uh, you have to say that Trump was right uh, about Korea and the others were wrong because Korea has been for decades 
a, cre a clear and present danger to world peace and, uh, and stability. It's not that I'm passionately denouncing the rules-based international order. I'm passionately denouncing the fact that there is no rules-based international order. You just call lawlessness a rules-based international order with some mistakes, some breaches. But how many breaches does it take uh, to invalidate your thesis in the first place? If you have what you call an international rules-based system in the world, which is not just breached, not just mistakes, but which kills millions of people and renders the whole world completely unstable. How many times does that need to happen before your thesis is invalidated? Now, for most people, it long ago ceased to be credible to call it a rules-based international order. And I refuse to accept your thesis, that's all. I haven't got a thesis. I'm just asking you two what you think. Well, your thesis but is <laughs> that there is an international rules-based order. Oh, I see. And, and, and my case is that it's abundantly clear that there has not been. And that, therefore, attempts to exceptionalize Trump, which is the liberal mantra, are nonsense. He's only been in 23 months. So if we hadn't had the... world had the was in total chaos before he came. So, so if we hadn't had the United Nations and NATO set up after the Second World War, do you think the world would have been a better place? No, because I believe in a United Nations with real authority. But as long as you have veto powers, it cannot possibly uh, guarantee international order. I support the United Nations. It's, it's Tony Blair and George W. Bush that walked out of the United Nations and caused the cataclysm, which is being, I think, underappreciated here, of the Iraq War. Not since the First World War did we take a decision that would so change the world as the decision to invade Iraq. Now, the United Nations, the, the, the late Kofi Annan, described that at the time as an illegal act. And yet it was carried out by people who pretend that they are presiding over a rules-based international order. Last, last point, Mark. I, I, you know, we're going around in circles a bit, but what happens is that there's a certain point where utopianism becomes nihilism. If you say that the order is not perfect, that there are all sorts of things wrong with it, and therefore it's the same as having no order at all, that's a circular argument. From my perspective, I think it's better for us to have an idea about what kind of order we want to live in. It's something which you have to fight for. It, you're fighting against uh, the laws of history. For most of human history, there has been no, no such thing as the rule of law. We've lived in the kind of jungle where might makes right. And over the last century, there in fits and terms, there have been attempts to try and bring some kind of structure to try and regulate the relationships between countries. It's not been a linear process. It looked like there was a lot of progress 100 years ago. And then we had the Second World War. And then um, the Cold War. 
But after the end of the Cold War, I think enormous advances were made in protecting human rights, in setting up institutions to deal with the climate crisis, to deal with genocide, to make sure that you didn't have trade wars between different countries. And it's imperfect, and it still allows hypocrisy, and it's easier for strong countries to get their way than weaker countries. And there's racism, and there are all sorts of horrible things that have happened. And I'm not defending any of them, but I think that the attempt to do it is something which is noble and is worthwhile and is something that should be supported. The fact that we are trying to do it also allows us to see where we fall short of those, uh, of those aspirations. And there are lots of examples of it, countless examples of it. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying. And I do think that Donald Trump is not just somebody who's behaving outside of that system. He's acting against that system and trying to destroy it. And that's why he is a kind of unique threat to what has been achieved over the last few decades. And uh, I think he should be called out as that rather than just seen as part of uh, a kind of history of lawlessness and to pretend that this project hasn't been there and that these institutions are not there, even if they are often um, uh, you know, undermined and, and we don't live up to them. But the very fact that you can talk about an illegal act means that there's a law. Thank if you. If there's no law, the you can't talk about <laughs> an illegal act. Thank you very much to both of you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Mark Leonard and George Galloway. As ever, please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode, tell anyone you know that might be interested, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.